We're taking our Bibles and we're headed over to the book of Ruth. While you're turning to the book of Ruth, let me tell you a story about something that happened just a few years ago. There was a McDonald's down in the Tennessee area that one day a lady came in. This McDonald's was doing a special on nuggets. You know, you can buy a whole bunch more cheaper. And she came in and all she wanted was that pack of whatever it was, 10, 15 nuggets that were on sale. And so she paid for them and she wanted them. And then the employee came back after a few minutes and said, ma'am, I'm so sorry. The orders have been so much throughout the day. We've just ran out. We don't have enough to feed you because of this sale we're going. She says, I want my nuggets. And he said, I'm really sorry. He said, you know, um, we can get you something else. I want the nuggets. We can give you your money back. I want the nuggets. The manager came and talked with her, and the manager tried to explain they don't have any. I want the nuggets. So she took out her phone, dialed 911. The police came, and they heard her emergency, and and she ended up with a ticket, and she was ending up having to pay after it was all settled, $125 for not using 911 the right way. Now, that's an extreme case of somebody not getting their way and being insistent and getting in trouble. Let me ask you this. What do you do when God doesn't give you what you want or expect? Or worse yet, when God tells you, you have to wait. How do you act? How do you respond? That's what we're going to talk about this morning from the book of Ruth. Before we get into it, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so very much for your grace. We thank you that you are the Lord of our salvation, that as a result we are secure in Christ. We thank you that you do guide and direct our paths day by day, that as we wait upon you, you have a plan, you have a direction, you have a purpose in situations that we face day by day by day. But they're not easy. They're, they're hard. They're difficult. We need your strength. We need your help to just go through the trials, to go through the difficulties. And some of our church family especially need your grace. They're going through some cancer battles. And they aren't hearing good reports at times. Sometimes they have to wait to hear some reports. Please, Father, encourage them, strengthen them, help them. I think of those who are right now. We have one that we mentioned, Sunday School, is in the emergency room right now. Please help them. The Ailes are going through a battle with COVID. Please help them. We pray as well for the individuals who are going through other physical issues. We pray for the Bickles as Gary's going through this this disease that is ravaging his body. We pray that you would help he and Peggy. We ask, Father, that you would help those who are recovering from surgery. We think of Barb, Jim, think of Al, think of Carol, that you would help each one of them and as well their caregivers to be able to get through this difficulty. Father, I think of some who are pending jobs They just aren't sure what's going to happen. We have some who are struggling through just not sure how they're going to meet the next week's bills because of some difficulties, challenges, increased expenses. Lord, there's a a host of different hearts that need to be mended, need to be encouraged, need to be ministered to this day. Would you please do a special work in our midst? Would you take your word, provide encouragement to each and every one of them, those waiting for medicines to take effect, those waiting for families' problems to be resolved, those waiting to hear results of something that they've submitted. Father, please help them. Guide them. And use this time of ministering in a very, very special way. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 
We're talking about a story from the book of Ruth, if you've been with us, about a family and a situation that was really kind of devastating. This story starts off with this family, the father's name is Elimelech. He has a wife named Naomi. They have two children. And there's a famine that reaches Israel. Famine came in those days of the judges out of discipline because they weren't following the Lord. So he leaves the breadbasket, the area of Ephrathah, Bethlehem, and heads over to a forbidden land, to land of Moab. When he gets there, his sons end up marrying two Moabite girls. He ends up dying, and then his sons end up dying, and now there's three widows. There's no children. There's no nobody to take care of them. So mom-in-law Naomi says to the two girls, go back home. Go back to your families. Don't follow me. I, I'm just, I'm going to go back home to Israel. I hear that they have some food now. Time has gone by. The famine has lifted, lifted. But don't follow me. Go back to your mothers and your gods. The one daughter-in-law goes. The other one insists on following. And that other one is Ruth the heroine of this story. She follows back. She says, I'll never leave you. I'll stay with you. I'll take care of you. And your God shall be my God. She goes back to the land and she takes care of her mom-in-law. She starts working in the fields. It's harvest time. At the end of the season, this time of the year, She's out there and she's gleaning where they are, where the Jews have been told, leave the edges for the widows, but they have to come out and they have to glean. And she's doing the work of two ladies to take care of her and her mom-in-law. And it just so happened, she ended up at the field of a man by the name of Boaz. Boaz happens to be a relative of her deceased husband. And she just happened to be at his land. He takes notice of her. He's interested in her. They have some lunches together. Period of time goes by as the harvest is going on, and mom-in-law sits her daughter-in-law down and says, Ruth, according to our Jewish culture and our laws, Boaz is one of those men who could help us out. He's a relative. He is called a goel or a redeemer, kinsman redeemer, who is one who could rescue us. He could buy back the land that we may have had to give up when we left. He could marry you and raise up children in, your, in, in our family name. He's, he's got the position. He's got the ability. Why don't you do this? And mom-in-law gives Ruth some really good advice. Go at night as he's done working at the threshing floor here at the end of the harvest season and propose to him. Let him know you're interested. Remind him of his biblical duties according to the law to marry and provide and give him that option. Well, she does. She takes mom's advice. She goes there. He wakes up because she had uncovered his feet. And he says, who are you? And she explains that she would like him to cover her with his skirt. That is, to take care of me in the future. Cover me with all your provisions. He says, I'm really interested. I'd like to do it. But there is somebody ahead of line in me. Another Goel, kinsman, redeemer, who has first dibs. And so he says to her, he says, okay, go back home and I'm going to take care of things. I'll check it out. Ruth comes back home and when she gets back home that morning when the dawn is coming up, mom-in-law says, who are you? That's what it reads in our English Bible. Who are you? The idea is, what happened? Are you Mrs. Moab now? Uh, Mrs. Boaz now? Or, you know, what's going to happen? Did he say yes? And mom, she says, hey, this is what happened. In fact, look at the text with me. Let's just let the word speak. It says in verse 16, when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, who are you, my daughter? She told her all that the man had done to her. And she said, these six measures of barley gave me 
gave he me. Right before she left that morning, he gave her some more, uh, some more of the grain. For he said unto me, Go not empty unto your mother-in-law. Now we have, verse 18, the second tidbit of advice that comes from mom-in-law. Mom-in-law says to Ruth, Okay, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will fall. For the man will not be in rest until he has finished the thing this day. And so mom-in-law says, sit still. Interesting phrase. The word literally means stay still, stay calm. Don't become agitated. Don't become frustrated. Don't become, you know, really overly anxious. Just trust. Just sit still. It's really good advice. But what strikes me out, this is coming from Naomi. This is coming from a woman who her past was not one of sitting still and waiting on the Lord. Do you remember years ago? She and her husband left when there was a famine instead of trusting the Lord. Well, she learned by some of the trials and the discipline that, hey, listen, we need to sit still and know that he is God. And so it comes from a woman that, that has changed. But you think if you were Ruth, put yourself in her sandals for a minute. This would be difficult to do. This would be difficult, you know, is he, am I going to be married by the end of the day? Will he follow through? What will the other relatives say? Will I end up marrying somebody I don't know, never seen, have no clue? What's going to happen here? And if Boaz doesn't marry me, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my mom-in-law? She's in this flux of, you know how it is sometimes. Let's go back on the night before Christmas when you were a kid. You slept perfectly still. There was no, no anxiousness. No, that's not true. We couldn't fall asleep. We were looking around, trying to figure things out. Okay, you're a kid in school, and you're told to sit still 10 minutes before recess. And you happen to sit by the window and see the other kids out there. Or worse yet, this is the last day of school. And the teacher says, sit still. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. We, one of our uh, family members had a birthday this week. Their comment was, I, I, I was so excited for my birthday, I could hardly sleep during the night. We get those moments, an excitable moment. Sometimes it's for something fun. Sometimes it's not so fun. Sometimes it's hard to sit still when you're waiting to find out, what about the job? Did I get the job or not? Sometimes it's hard to be calm when you say, hey, the baby's coming. The baby's coming. It'll be another... Two months, but the baby's coming. Or, or maybe it's hard to sit still when you are the one waiting for some medical tests. You don't know what they're going to say. It's hard to sit still and to be calm when you have a surgery scheduled, one that you don't want to go through, but it has to be done. It's hard to remain calm. It's hard to remain calm sometimes when you're the one in the waiting room. Did they go through the surgery okay? What's going to happen? It's hard to be the one that, that is going through rehab. And you want to get this rehab done. You want the aches, the pains. You want to get back to where you were before the surgery. You want to get back there yesterday. And you have to wait. And it's going to take some weeks of recovery, 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 and rehab. It's hard. It's hard to figure out, did I get the house? Every house that I looked at, you know, 10 other people put an offer. Did they accept my offer? What about if, um, if the situation is that you apply to college? Did they accept me? Did, can I do it? What if you are really good at the sport? You've put your effort into really playing hard, but you don't know if you made the team yet. Tryouts were just this past week. 
And you're supposed to sit still, remain calm, but all you can think about is, man, did I make the team? They won't post the team until next week. What about when you have these situations? When you've tried. And some families, they're in that situation. They've tried to have children. And it's not been successful. And now you're waiting. You're waiting to find out, this time? This time? Be still. Sit still. You're going now. You've gone through all the treatments. And you're going back for the test. Is it, is it active? Is it in remission? What are we going to do? Maybe it's this one. Maybe you're in a court situation. You want to get this resolved. You want to get this, this albatross that's just de- tearing you down. Maybe you have a loved one that's been deployed. Are they going to get home safe? Or, or maybe this. Maybe you know somebody in Florida. In the midst of a hurricane, are they safe? And there's no cell service. There's no response for a few days. And you're wondering, what's the deal? Well, after Naomi had done everything, she and Ruth had done what they could. They followed the word of God by approaching Boaz and saying, Boaz, you're the guy. You could, you could do this. And would you be willing to do it? After that, this is when Naomi says to her, sit still until you know the end of the matter. Just be calm. Trust in the Lord. This isn't the first time that God's people have been told to sit still. Do you remember what happened when the Jews had escaped from Egypt? After 400, 430 years of captivity, they're released. They're in the wilderness. They're headed for the promised land, and they come to the Red Sea. And God says to them, fear not, this time stand, but same word, be calm. Just trust. Do you remember the sea is in front of them? Who's behind them? Here comes the Egyptian army. And the Egyptian army wants to kill them. And they are vicious. They are howling. They are doing their war chants. And here they come. And Moses says, God says, stand still. Don't get upset. There's another time. When Job has lost all of his children. Job has lost his job. He has lost his farms, his crops. He has lost even the community's respect. They want nothing to do with them because of his disease. They're staying away. His four friends show up. And he is just a devastated man. His health is totally broken. He says that even my wife is appalled at the stench of my breath. And here he is. He gets this advice. It is, stand still. And consider the works of God. When you're in pain and you're in agony, not to be distressed. You have this situation where David, in Psalm 4, he is struggling. He is, many think this is the time when, when Absalom is coming against him. And he is struggling and he's saying, I'm struggling with some temptations. And he makes this comment, stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed. In other words, what's that mean? Commune with your own heart, meditate. Pray. Think about the Lord. And he says, this is really hard in the middle of the night to think about God and to have peace of heart, peace of mind. When I've got all of this happening, when my son is upset with me, when he wants to take my life, when I may lose my job, my kingdom, and everything. And he says, be still. Be calm. Just trust. Later on, David is really stretched. He says, I don't understand this. I look around me, and the wicked prosper. 
The, the wicked who are evil, who are vile, who cheat, who steal, they keep on getting the job advancements. They keep on having the blessings. If I do something wrong, God gives me a God spank. And God, God corrects me. Rest. Same word. Same word that Naomi gives. Be still in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, it, it'll work out. It'll work out. But boy, in the middle of that, that moment when you look around and you think evil is getting control and what are we supposed to do? Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. In fact, when Israel was under attack, when they were being uh, attacked by political chaos from around, when they had enemies around, when all of a sudden the political system and what they thought the economy was all of a sudden in havoc for Israel, you kind of have an idea what that would be like when all of a sudden there's enemies flooding in and trying to change the culture and change the nation and economics are going are tanking you ever been in one of those days one of those settings and here's the advice god says be still and know that i'm god i'll be exalted i will be exalted and you say well if you're going to be exalted kick them out of the capital Get them out of Harrisburg. Let's purge the whole... Listen, our duty... By the way, I, I'm not opposed to voting. I think it's right. It's our responsibility. But our government is not the answer. Jesus Christ is the answer. Okay? We're supposed to be still and know that he is God. So what happens in this story is mom and law says, Be still. Don't get so agitated. Don't get so frustrated. Don't come to the point where you quit, where you give up. But rather, what you should do is quietly trust in the Lord. And as you look at the story, why is it that Naomi and Ruth are able to trust Boaz? There are a lot of parallels between Boaz taking care, providing, doing his thing for them, and Jesus Christ doing his thing. There are commentators upon commentators that say that this story, though historical, also represents God's care for his Old Testament bride, Israel, or Jesus Christ and his care for his bride, the church. They, you can run with that, but let me just, you, in your patience, let me show you some parallels of why is it that Ruth could trust and remain still because of her confidence in Boaz, why did she have that confidence and make this application? We can have that same type of confidence for the very same reasons. We can have confidence in our kinsman, redeemer, Jesus Christ. Why is that? Number one, this. Number one is this thought. Because of the kinsman, redeemer's past pattern. How has he shown himself up to this point? In this story... Naomi said, be still. This man will not rest until he gets the... How did she know that? Why did Naomi have that confidence in Boaz? Well, because of the way Boaz has been acting all along. If you go back into the story, and I'm not going to do that this morning because of the time and you're familiar with it, up to this point, Boaz, he's been a very hard worker. He's proven himself he's no slouch. He is what we would call dependable, faithful, reliable as an individual. One you could, you could put confidence in. 
He is, he is one that is going to follow through. He has shown great concern for them. In the past, he's let them come work in his fields. In the past, he's even prayed for Ruth when he says, Hey, may the Lord continue to bless you as, as you have put your, yourself under his wings. He's made that prayer, made that comment. He, in fact, he told his people in the field, his workers, do, do not glean, leave even a little bit more around the edges, and do not reproach her. So here he is. He's shown concern for this woman and her mom-in-law already. He's made some provisions for them indirectly or directly. There was that time when he sat down with a meal and he gave her extra at the meal in chapter 2. There's that time where he says to her, here's this extra gift to, he said to his men, let the extra grain fall so it would be easier for her. So in the past, he has been extremely reliable. That's been his pattern. So she can, so mom says, think about it. If he's been reliable in the past, then probably he's going to be reliable in the present. So let's jump. Let's bring it to you and me. Has God shown himself to be reliable? Has God in your life provided in the past? Has God cared for you when you were going through difficulties in days gone by? Has God protected you time and time again in the past and your family and made provision? You sang a few moments ago, great is thy faithfulness. Did you mean that? If you did, then the point is you can trust him today because he was reliable yesterday. That's been God's pattern. And so we can trust our kinsman and redeemer. We can calm down. And how many of us? We've gone through frustrating situations. We've been in tense moments. We've gotten so we didn't sleep. We've gotten irritable. We've gotten to the point that, that we took it out on others. And then we say, oh man... In retrospect, we look back and say, God had it under control all along. I guess I shouldn't have overreacted. Well, then let's not overreact today. Let's not overreact this week. Let's remember our God is faithful. Because he has proven faithfulness in the past, we can rely upon him in the future. He said, being confident of this very thing, he which did begin a good work in you will continue to do the work until you get raptured and taken home. Until the day of Jesus Christ. That brings me to a second reason why we can trust the Lord. Because of his personal promise or promises with the Lord. In this text, you have the words of Boaz. Where Boaz says in chapter 3, and he brings it under oath. Look at the end of chapter, uh, I'm sorry, verse 13 in chapter 3. Where he makes the comment, he says, I do the part of the kinsman to you as the Lord lives. Don't worry about it. I'll do this. I promise you. Before God, at the depth, he made this commitment to her. Listen, God has made promises to you. God has made every one of you. God has made some promises. And God will keep them. How do I know that? Because God doesn't lie. God, God doesn't lie to us. He doesn't trick us. He isn't trying to deceive us. He's not trying to sucker us into anything. Our God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. What he said, shall he not do it? Shall he not make good? The strength of Israel, that's God, I will, says, I will not lie. We read, it is impossible for our God to lie. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie. So... We come to this point. Did God really mean it? 
Did God really mean it that he would forgive us of our sins and give us the gift of eternal life? Did God mean it or was he tricking us to try to suck us into a Bible-believing church so that we would change our religious affiliations? I don't believe God was tricking any of us. I believe that when God said he would give us the gift of eternal life, when he said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, God meant it. When God said, I will give you the gift of eternal life, he gave you an everlasting gift. When God said that I will put you in my hand and no one can pluck you out of my hand, God meant it. When God said, if you repent of your sin and call upon Jesus to be your one and only Savior, if you realize that you need a Savior because your sins have separated you from the Father, and you realize that Jesus is the only way, the truth, the life to get unto the Father, and that you can only come to God by Him, and you come and say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Please give me the gift of eternal life that you bought by dying for me. If we pray he hears, he saves us. Have you ever done that? Have you ever done that? Have you ever called upon Christ to be your Savior yet? Have you, have you come to the place in your life where you no longer rely upon your good looks, good works, baptism, church membership, but you say, none of that is going to get me to heaven. I'm not that good. I'm not that good looking. I'm not that rich. This church isn't that great because they have Pastor Burgraff there, whatever the issues are, and you say, I need you, Jesus, and I take you as my Savior. If you have never done that, you need to. He said you must be born again, not just once, but he emphasized that that night on a couple, in a couple ways by repeating it. You must be born again. You shall not see the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. You shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. Have you ever come to that spot in your life where you repented and asked Christ? If you did, and you meant it, then he promised you he would give you the gift of eternal life and you'll never lose it. Okay, so after that, you're like me. I'm struggling. I'm doubting. As a 16-year-old, did God mean that? Did God mean that? Yeah, yeah, God meant that. But I still say things that I shouldn't say. I still cuss and I curse. I still have an attitude problem. I still struggle. Then God meant it when he said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is not tricking us. He will forgive us. I don't have to get saved again. I don't have to get born again again. I just need to confess what I've done wrong as a child to a parent and say, please forgive me and restore my relationship, my, my fellowship, excuse me. Not my relationship, but my fellowship. I'm your child, but I've mixed things up. Please forgive me and help me. Does God, does God mean it when he says, I will hear you when you pray? Yes, he does. And you say, but I don't know. It just seems like I'm going through the routine. God says, if you call, I will answer. Now, it may not be the answer we want, but God's answering. God hears us when we pray. He promised that. God promised he will never leave me nor forsake me. And you feel at those moments when you have some devastating loss, you feel like, where is God? He never left you. He never forsook you. His promise that he will provide all of our needs. God will provide our needs. He didn't say he'll provide our wants. 
He'll provide our needs. And he is faithful. He is honest. He might take us up to the very last minute before we get the provision, but God will provide for us. God will never give me more than I can handle. I hear this probably more than any other thing while people are going through trials. Why did God give me this? I can't take any more. God knows you can. God knows you can. I don't know why he's doing it. I don't know how it's going to turn out. But I know this. God will not give you more than you can endure. That's his promise. I know his promise that he will help us to overcome sinful habits. You have the addiction. You have the temptation. You have, you have that past that haunts you and keeps on bringing up. And you say, will I ever get escape? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And in that text, he's talking about learning to change an attitude. Learning to change a response to circumstances where he is in need. And he says, I have learned to become content. That wasn't his past. But through Christ, he was able to come to that point. Can God help rebuild your marriage? Yes. The word of God says, except the Lord build the house, they that labor, labor in vain. The word for build your marriage, except the Lord build the house, is the word rebuild or remodel, repair. Can God put things back together again? Yeah. If you don't stand in his way, if your partner doesn't stand in his way and you work according to the word of God, it can get back to where it's supposed to be. Will God give you wisdom to handle some major decisions, major difficult decisions? You're not sure. Should we do this? Should we move? Should we not move? Should, what should we do about advising the kids? Where do they go to school? He says, if any man lack wisdom, wisdom let him ask of God who giveth liberally and abradeth not, or he doesn't hold back on you. How can we trust the God? How can we stay calm? Because of God's promises. Number three, because our kinsman redeemer, like Boaz, he made provisions. He made provisions. I alluded to this in the past already, that in, as she came to the fields, he made some minor provisions. But I want you to catch what happens in chapter 3. She says, will you marry me? He says, I will. And so we pick up in verse 15 of chapter 3. Also he said, bring the veil that you have upon you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. And she went into the city. And she comes to her mom-in-law and she says, mom-in-law, here's what he said, here's what he did. And mom-in-law says, after that, wait and be still. In other words, the gift that he gave her that night at the threshing floor, it had some meaning. It had some impact on Naomi. Naomi saw it as something that was helpful in building her trust and saying, Ruth, you can trust this guy. What was it? Well, obviously he cared. Obviously he'd help. Obviously, but think this through. He gave her enough because... It was going to have to carry her through. He didn't know how long it would take to settle the matter. He had to meet up with another relative. We'll talk about it next week. He doesn't know where this other relative is according to the text. He doesn't, have, he doesn't know what if he's away. What if this other relative isn't able to deal with the deal right away? So there's enough to carry them through for a period of time. That they have provisions. They have food. That if it takes 
a week, if it takes two weeks, if there's times when you say, I want an answer, this is me, I'm sorry, this, this is me, you guys probably don't do this. I have a tough time waiting and being patient. I mean, the elevator at the back of the church building, push the button, you have to wait. Okay, so if you step in, you push to go to another floor. Do you realize if you push the button that says closed door, it'll go two seconds faster than normal? Just, I want to get moving. I want to go. And you say, yeah, but what if somebody is running down the hall and wants to get on? They should learn patience. The the door would shut. (laughs) And in this case, the other, he's saying, hey, listen, things are going to be okay because you have to be patient. You're going to, it may take a while, but I'm going to work with it. But I provided for you to take care. I think that is a possibility in the significance. I think more so. There's the down payment. It's the idea that this is just a little bit of what I can do for you in the future. This is what I have in, in hand, in store, and I'm giving you this, like an engagement ring, that I'm giving you this as a token that I'm going to take care of all your needs in the future. Okay, then I pause and say, what about God? What about God? Has God earned our trust by what love and provisions he has made so far? Do you know we have a service periodically that we do, that is all about God's provisions to remind us what God has provided us. Do you know what service I'm talking about? We did it last Sunday in the morning service. Communion. It is a reminder time and time again that God has provided for us in the past. He's going to provide us for in the future. It's, an, it's just a little bit of hors d'oeuvres to a feast that's in the future. It's a promise. You know, in Romans chapter 8, we love the one part of this passage. We love, and we quote it a lot, all things work together for... Okay, we quote that. Let, let me set the scene. In Romans, that the, when he's writing, these people feel like they've been abandoned. The church of Rome is starting to go through persecution. They are going through difficulties. They are losing jobs because of their Christianity. They are losing friendships. They have no idea what's going to happen. There is going to be time where the civil government is going to come against them. We know that's true. There's ten different, there ends up being 10 different empirical um, persecutions over the next 200 and some years. And so they're really in, they're in difficult times. They just don't know, where is God? Has God abandoned me? What's going on? Paul writes to them under the inspiration of Scripture, and he starts with this one phrase, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them called according to his purpose. But he goes on. There's more to this text. He goes on, he says, in a little, few verses later on, what shall we say then to these things? If God be for us... Okay, they can't... They, you know, they can't get at us. God's got us. We're in God's hand. And he goes on. This is the underlying verse in my mind. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? I don't think that verse is you and I treating God like a genie that anything we want, we should get. I don't think that's the concept. I think the concept is this. If God gave us the best he has, his own son then surely God will take care of us beyond that. If God gave me the gift of eternal life, I belong to him. He's going to take care of all my every, every difficulties. He'll handle the bills. I got to do my part. He'll handle the health situation. I got to do my part. He'll help with the conflicts, but I got to do my part. 
God will not abandon me if he's given me his very best, his son. And he goes on, he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Do you remember the rest of this? Where he says, she says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famines, should poverty or peril or the sword, you know, are are we going to be abandoned by God because of these things? Is God freaked out by that stuff? No. That's when he goes on, he says, no, in all these things, we are more than hypernike. We are more than conquerors. None of this can, can separate us from God's care, God's compassion. In fact, did God give you a down payment? Did he give you a wedding ring? A promise ring, if you would, that said, you are his, he will take care of you. He did. According to scriptures, you were sealed with the Spirit. Jesus promised this. The night he left, he said, I will not abandon you. I will not leave you orphanless. I will give you another just like me. I will give you one who will stand beside you, gird you up, a parakletos, one to gird you up, to hold you up. We call it in, the, in our English Bibles, another comforter. That comforter comes, and the book of uh, Paul wrote in the book of Corinthians and Ephesians says, this was God's down payment. This was his guarantee. This was what you put down for buying a house, the earnest money. That's the word Erebon. The wedding ring, the proposal ring. I'm sorry, the engagement ring. I said wedding ring. It's the engagement ring. That's the Erebon that God gives that says, I'm committed to you. I, I'm... I'm I'm in this for life, for your life. Our kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, he's providing for us. He's taking care of us. And he makes that comment about these things, that the inheritance. We can trust in him because of what he's given us already. We can trust in what he's going to give us this week. What he's going to bring across our path, he knows, he's wise, He's doing it for our good. We can trust him because of his position. So here's Ruth and Naomi. They say, let's trust Boaz. Why? Well, Boaz has the wherewithal to take care of this. We, we already talked about that. He's one who has the, the status to be able to redeem them financially out of their situation. We talked about last week. Jesus has the wherewithal. He is related to them. We talked about last week. He's in a position as their relative. He can do this. Now, there's one fella that has first dibs. He's a step ahead of him. But here you have one who is in relationship. He can do it. He's got the wherewithal. And what's best yet, he's the only one we're going to find out. He's the only one who not only can, but who wants to do it. Who wants to do it. Okay, that's his position. What is God's position to you? What is God's position? Hmm. Can God take care of our needs? Does he have the ability? He has the ability. He is rich in mercy. He shall supply. If you lack, God has everything. He has the wisdom. He has the ability. He has the comfort. He has the protection. He has everything we need at his disposal. He can. Now the question is, does he want to? Yes. He's our father. When we got born again, he signed up to be our, respectfully and reverently, our dad, our Abba father. Do you remember how he said, hey, your father knows what things you have need? You know, you, we, as parents, do we have a clue that our kids need clothes? I'm not trying to be silly. Do you have a clue? Do you have a clue that they need to eat? 
Yes, do you have a clue that they may need transportation? You know. You're the dad. When you, you know those things. Our God knows even more. And as the dad, is he concerned for us? In that text, he says, hey, listen, you, God takes care of the birds. God knows all about them. Aren't you much more important to him as your heavenly father? You, his children? If he takes care of the birds, he's going to obviously take care of... Yeah. And he goes on, he says, hey, if, if you have a need, you go to the father. Which one of you dads, when your kids would say, hey, listen, I'm really hungry. I'm really, I, I need some food. Here, have a stone. Here, I'm really, really hungry. I, I, can, I, can I have some fish? You're a fisherman, Peter. Can I get some fish? Here, have a poisonous snake. None of us would do that. And he says, if we as earthly fathers would not treat our children that way, how much more your heavenly father? He will not stick it to you. Stop thinking God is against you. And God doesn't care. God loves you. God cares for you. God will take care of bringing things into our lives that is for our best. Not, he's not evil. He's not against us. He is 100% for us. We can trust him. We can rely upon him. Because of the position he holds as a father. A father with the ability to take us, carry us through, give us what we need. Can I wrap up with this? Because of his present activity. His present, present productivity. In the story, there is confidence that, that just exudes from the heart of Naomi. And Ruth, have confidence. Why is that? Because you read in chapter 4, then... Then, as soon as possible, went Boaz up to the gate and he sat himself, put himself in the position. We're going to see next week, he gets 10 of the leaders together and just so happens when he gets the minimum number of judges there, just so happens, tongue-in-cheek, here comes the other relative at that very moment. Boaz is busy, he says, come, and getting it done, he says, sit down, and he goes through all the whole deal. The point is, Boaz was at work. He was busy already trying to care and provide for them. May I ask you a simple question? What is Jesus doing for you right now? What is Jesus doing right now in heaven? The word of God says he is at the right hand of the Father. Right hand of God making intercession for you right now. He is who is able to save us to the uttermost to keep us. That come, all that come to him. Seeing he ever lives to make intercession. God is praying for you and me. Or Jesus is praying to the Father for you and me right now. He knows our needs. He knows our feebles and foibles. He knows where we need to grow. He is fully aware and he is actively working in heaven on your behalf. Wow, we should be praying for one another, but I'm so glad Jesus is praying for me. And he is. What is he doing for you right now? According to Romans chapter 8, he is working out circumstances and events, details that are for our best. I don't like some of those details. I don't like the detail of growing older. I don't know about you, but as I get older, my body is weaker. I don't think that's cool. I don't like the, the, you know, the sciatic nerve being a constant issue. I don't like certain, certain things that are happening. But at the same time, if God allows events, circumstances, health issues into our life, is he making a mistake? Not according to this text. God is doing it for you and me to improve us or to improve our family. It's Deb's fault. No, 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 no. 
No. It's as we grow together. God is working. He is, God is not making a mistake. This isn't a divine, infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing deity who cares for me enough to do what I need to grow and to become better. That's amazing because I don't want to do that at times as a dad. As a grandpa, I would just as soon let everything just remain as it is and don't stir the waters and don't put people through a difficult time, but they don't grow. And God says, I love you so much. That difficult time will be your best. It'll be more rewarding for you. You'll see it in time. I care. And I'm going to keep you through all of that. I'm going to make sure that everything is working because right now we are confident of this very thing that he which has begun a good work in us will continue to do it until the day of Jesus Christ. Right now, God is at work in you and me so that we can will and do of his good pleasure. What an amazing God we worship this day. A God who is caring, a God who is concerned, a God who is constructing in our life, who is working in a wonderful, wonderful way. (laughs) One author was talking about what it's like riding with some people who don't know when to be quiet in the car. And he was writing about a family situation, that in his family, it was his grandmother that when she would get in the car, he said, as a youngster, I'd get in a car, we'd be traveling on vacation a long distance. And he said, I'd be in the backseat, I would fall asleep. I would have a wonderful trip, even if the trip is hour after hour after hour, because I trusted dad at the driver's seat. I had no problem. But he said, whoa, my grandma, when she'd be in the car, she would be so nervous. Every time a vehicle drove by... <gasps> You know, if she thought he should slow down, she's stomping on the brakes that aren't there. She's telling him to do this. And as a youngster, now this guy's looking back, he said, we both got to the same place. But I enjoyed the trip. She was a basket case. And he makes this, asks this question. We're all in the same, you know, if we're born again, we're all end up at the same place. How's your journey? Is it enjoyable or are you a basket case? Are you one who's frustrated and tense? There's a situation on this story. This gal, she trusts. Will you? There's a song that some of you are familiar with. He will hold me fast. It came in 1906 that what happened, they were holding meetings up in Toronto. And Harkness was the preacher And after he was preaching one of the meetings that that month-long crusade, what happened is one young man came afterwards and says, it is so hard to live for Christ. I feel like I want to give up. I don't know if we'll make it. I don't know if it's possible. So Harkness was dealing with him, counseling him, and saying, listen, God will not forsake you. It's hard, but the Lord will help you through your trials, your difficulties, your growth in Christ. He will help you to overcome. The Lord is going to keep you and help you. And then he wrote to his dear friend, Ada Habershon was her name. She had written already multiple hymns. He said, we need a hymn, a new hymn, that talks about how God will keep us and he will help us. So she wrote the first setting of this hymn, He Will Hold Me Fast. 
it got sung for a number of years. But more recently, right around 2012, somebody got a hold of it, and he's the music pastor at Capitol Hills Baptist Church in D.C. area. He got his hands on it, and he rewrote the melody. The reason being that it became so important to him is he was going through trials. Even as he was serving the Lord in a full-time vocational spot, he got discouraged. He felt overwhelmed by the difficulties of life, the issues of family illness. And he wrote, he wrote the song, very simply, with a beautiful, beautiful tune about how God will hold us fast because our God is faithful. Father, we thank you. We thank you for that assurance that no matter what we're going through, we're in your hand, that you're caring, you're guiding, that you're holding us. Help us, therefore, to be ones who will sit still, be calm, and trust you more. Thank you for being our Father. Thank you for loving us the way you did. We pray this in Christ's name.